Before we begin today's podcast, I'm excited to let you, the audience, know about the newest initiative that our organization, Torch, has recently unveiled. We're giving away thousands of free Shabbat light switch covers to friends, to listeners, supporters, students, participants all over the world. Now, what is a Shabbat light switch cover? So it's basically a piece of plastic that magnetically clicks on top of a light switch and covers it for the duration of Shabbat to prevent any errant, any accidental flicking on or off of a light switch. Most modern light switches have a little plate that has two screws in it that fasten it to the wall. And someone invented a light switch cover that has two small magnets that are perfectly aligned with those screws so it clicks on so that it can be placed upon the light switches before Shabbat and prevent people from accidentally turning the lights on or off during Shabbat. So Torch, our organization, we went to China. We made a custom order of these light switch covers and we're giving them out for free to our friends, to our listeners, to people exactly like you. And I think what's so wonderful about this project is that there's really something for everyone. You know, our organization, Torch, we cater to a very wide audience. We have listeners, we have students, we have friends that have never desecrated the Shabbat in their lives. They've been totally Shabbat observant since the day they were born. We also have listeners and students who have never observed a full Shabbat in their lives. Maybe they're aware of Shabbat, they're intrigued with the idea of Shabbat. They like the idea of having a sabbatical, but they're overwhelmed with the details. They don't want to commit to all at once. And we found that this project, this idea, is really for everyone. If someone is fully Shabbat observant, this is going to help them that they don't trigger any accidental discharges. You know, it happens to everyone. You leave the room, you wake up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom, and you accidentally, almost like by autopilot, you flip the switch on, you flip the switch off, and you have this plastic plate that you put on before Shabbat, and it's going to help prevent such errant triggers of the light switch. If someone is not Shabbat observant, but maybe they want to get a taste of the flavor of Shabbat, they want to maybe dedicate one or two light switches in their home, it's going to be a small step towards making Shabbat more meaningful, towards maybe observing Shabbat a little bit more. And for someone like that, this too is for them. And I personally use these Shabbat light switch covers during the week. It has these amazing magnets. Who doesn't love magnets? And I love to click them together. It's such a satisfying clickety sound and feeling when it snaps together. Here's what it sounds like. You hear that? And you can play with it. Just such a fun toy to play with. And we're giving them out for free. So go to our website, torchweb.org. You'll see a banner on the homepage. Just fill out your information and we will ship you your very own Torch Shabbat light switch covers. We label it internally as the Mitzvah Maggots. We'll send it to you for free. You have nothing to lose. This is a free giveaway. There's no gimmicks. Get them for free. Check it out, torchweb.org. So last time we spoke about prophecy in general, and we talked about what it would take to become a prophet yourself. Now, this is a vast subject, as we mentioned last time. In fact, I have uh, four books that I'm using as central 
research guides towards the 13 principles of faith. The biggest one of them has 200 pages with small letters just on principle number six, which is the principle of prophecy in general. There really is a lot to cover. And I decided to organize today's discussion kind of, you know, after the, we had the introduction to prophecy, what, what's next? What I decided to do is to try to chart a history of prophecy from creation, from Adam until prophecy went extinct or at least it was temporarily made extinct, and to see the various kind of ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of of prophecy. And I think that this will give us kind of a deeper understanding into the subject of prophecy and the sixth principle. I'm a little bit worried because I'm pretty sure that the presentation may sound a little bit disjointed, but I think that in trying to compress a lot of information into the time allotted. I think it's the best template for moving forward in principle number six, the idea of prophecy. Before we begin, I want to reiterate that we really truly don't have a concept of what prophecy is. What does the experience of the prophecy really look like? What does a prophet really understand? Because a prophet knows everything. Every book is open before them. All knowledge is clear and lucid in front of them. They're going to transcend to a different dimension via their prophecy. They're also capable of all kinds of uh, cool parlor tricks. As we said, you know, everyone has anything lost. They just go to the prophet. The prophet tells them right away where it is. But their connection to the divine, their bond with the spiritual world and God is so intense that those things really don't titillate them at all. I read an analogy to explain this. Suppose you have a people get, you know, people getting together to study Torah. And one of the people who's there amongst the group is blind. And everyone's there studying Torah and amazing discussion. And the person who's blind who interrupts them, he says, um, what color is the paint on the wall? That was the question the blind person doesn't know. And of course, the other participants would say, we're talking about Torah. Like you're talking about all this nonsense, all these things that are truly immaterial. To them, they have vision. They see the walls like that, no problem. That's not what they're interested in. They came, they gathered together, they're united to be involved in more lofty pursuits. A prophet is a visionary. He's a seer. They see. Everything's open before them. When Saul was missing his donkeys, he went to Samuel because Samuel knew where it was. But was that what Samuel was focused on? That that was his pursuit? No. He was involved in much loftier pursuits. And in fact, it's ironic that the only people that wouldn't abuse all the cool abilities that the prophet has is the prophet themselves. To us, we're thinking, okay, if I was a prophet, I would right away figure out what tomorrow's lottery would be. I see the future after all to a certain degree. Obviously, each prophet on their own level, that's what I would do. But that's why I'm not a prophet. Because the only people that are able to attain that level of vision are the ones that are so immersed in the spiritual world. This world is immaterial. It doesn't really matter to them. It's open before them, but it doesn't really matter to them. Now, when we talk about the history of prophecy, of course, the first place to start is the very first prophet, the very first man in in the Torah narrative. And of course, that is Adam. And we see that Adam, for example, he gives names 
to all the animals. And our sages tell us, what does it mean he gives names to all the animals? He's not choosing arbitrary names. You know, this is a tiger because it's a tiger. He is able to understand the essence of each one of these species, what they are, what role God put them in this world for, and to give them a fitting name based upon their role in the Almighty's world. Consequently, this ability, this skill of Adam to be able to give names to all the animals is a reflection of Adam's total clairvoyance, total clarity, total complete prophecy. In fact, there's many sources in the Talmud and other related literature that talk about Adam's unrestrained vision. For example, Talmud tells us that Adam, he was from the earth to the heavens. So that makes him sound like he's Robert Wadlow, the tallest man ever, right? Eight foot 11, really long legs and really cumbersome and lumbering. That's not what it means. It means that he had total vision over everything. A second Talmudic related teaching tells us that he was able to see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. He didn't have those Superman x-ray glasses. He had unrestrained vision of a prophet. He was able to understand everything of all the elements of all the spiritual entities, like all the angels. He understood them on a very fundamental level, so much so that the Talmud actually tells us when Adam appeared, the angels conflated Adam with God and wanted to worship Adam because he was a spiritual stature, the likes of which they've never seen, and they concluded this must be a representation of God. Of course, Adam said, no, 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 you're making a big blunder. I am a creation like you. Let us go together and let us all worship God. But of course, what this is telling us is that Adam was the epitome of a great visionary, of a great prophet, at least before his sin. After his sin, he's diminished. Of course, this is a much larger discussion. After Adam's sin, he's diminished. His vision is curtailed. He loses at least that high level of prophecy and all of world history changes as a result of that sin. And broadly speaking, our mandate as a species and as individuals is to try to restore ourselves and our world to the state of Adam pre-sin and to become as great as we can and become prophets, really. And in fact, we're told that Moses, he was the only one that became like Adam before his sin, and he had the same level of prophecy like Adam before his sin. That completely clear, unadulterated prophecy of Adam was mirrored only by Moses, at least mirrored by a living person only by Moses, and that's why Moses is in a class of his own, He's going to be subject of principle number seven, the prophecy of Moses. But that's where we introduce the prophecy in general. Of course, Noah's a prophet. There's other prophets in between Adam and Abraham. But we read in Genesis all about Abraham. And the Midrash tells us that Abraham had a very colorful backstory. He was a thinker. He was a philosopher. He was an influencer. He taught the world about monotheism. His life was threatened as a result. He was saved miraculously. We're giving the whole backstory to Abraham. And yet, you open the Torah, 
And the first introduction that we have to Abraham is God tells him, leave your homeland, leave your father's home, go move to the land of Canaan. I say, just tell us, is that at this juncture, Abraham is 75 years old. He's had a, whole, a long life till then, and he's been thinking about God since he was three. So the 72 years that are unaccounted for. Why? Why are we only introduced to Abraham as already an advanced ages and advanced achievements? Because now Abraham has unlocked prophecy. And thus, only once Abraham is already a prophet, only then does the Torah begin his narrative. And our sages tell us that while Moses was the greatest of prophets, the next level is the prophecy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the greatest prophets this side of Moses. And the way it tells it to us is very interesting. The Midrash tells us that the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the Merkava. The Merkava, not the Israeli taint by that same name, but the Merkava means a chariot, chariot, a cavalcade. They're the cavalcade, the chariot of God. And what does that mean? So the way it appears is in chapter 17 of Genesis, in the aftermath of the instruction that Abraham is given to circumcise himself, of course, that is a prophecy, we read that the prophecy ended. God says to him, walk before me, be perfect, circumcise yourself. When the child's eight days, you circumcise. That's my covenant. It's a, it's a chapter 17 in Genesis. And then it says that God finished speaking to Abraham and God ascended above Abraham. Says Rashi, what does this mean? This teaches us that Abraham was the chariot of God. What does this mean? The commentaries tell us what this means. A king has a chariot. A king has the entourage, the posse, the detail that's always ready at a moment's notice. King wakes up in the middle of the night and wants ice cream or wants to go for a ride about town. You don't have to wake up the bleary RA drivers. You don't have to fill up the tank. It's always ready. It's always ready at a moment's notice. That's what a king's chariot is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are always primed for prophecy. They're always ready. They don't need to say, you know what? Let me get in the frame of mind. Let me tidy myself up. Let me get ready. No. Give me five minutes. The the king's coming to my house now. Ooh, let's set things up, make it ready. No. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are such a lofty spiritual stature. They're the king's chariot. They're always primed and ready for prophecy without any preparation. And therefore, what happens when Abraham's prophecy concludes? It's not that Abraham lowers himself. He now is no longer in a state of prophecy. It's God ascends above him. Abraham is still ready to go. It's not that prophecy ended because Abraham now moved on to other things. Abraham lowered himself and brought himself back to the mundane world. No, Abraham is still in the state of prophecy. He's still ready. God says, okay, I'm done communicating. God ascends above him. And the commentaries note that we have another prophet, or at least someone who communicates with God, Cain, in chapter 4 of Genesis. And it says by Cain that he departed from God. 
Meaning the prophecy ended not because God said, I'm done talking to you, but because Cain said, okay, he's no longer in that state of prophecy. Now, of course, as we mentioned last time, even with an individual prophet, there's ups and downs. There isn't continuous prophecy. There's times in their life when they have prophecy, times when they don't have it, related to all kinds of circumstances. But there's something special about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they are always ready to go. They don't need to be reminded. They don't need to be given a few minutes warning. They don't need to tidy themselves up. They're ready to go. I want to add that my uh, grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that when Jacob reunited with Joseph after 22 years of separation, it's one of the momentous events in the book of Genesis, and if you read the verses clearly, you'll notice that Joseph is processing this reunion with deep emotions. He's crying, he's getting all involved, whereas Jacob is more stoic, doesn't seem to be responding emotionally. And then you look at the commentary, you look at Rashi, Rashi tells us that Jacob was involved in other things. He's saying, reciting the Shema. So where there's this happy reunion, Jacob thought he lost his his child, he thought he died, he's been miserable for 22 years, he's been inconsolable, and now he's finally meeting and Joseph is crying on his neck. It's a very emotional, from Joseph's perspective, Whereas Jacob says, oh, this is the right time to recite the Shema. So it's one of the questions. What's going on over here? Why is Jacob reciting the Shema? Not Joseph. What's the, what's the inconsistency? What is the difference between Jacob and Joseph? So my grandfather, blessed memory, he brought this point. Jacob was always ready for prophecy. He was, of course, a prophet, but he would not need to kind of muster up the preparation for prophecy. He was always there and he was worried. He's meeting Joseph, and of course, there's going to be an emotional gush, and he's going to focus for a second on something which is not God, his child that he missed, that he lost, he thought he lost, and that is going to right away boot him from the chariot. Because even though maybe God doesn't want to appear to them, but the stature of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that they're the chariot, meaning they're always ready to go. They never need to be nudged back to be ready, and even if God's not going to appear to him at that time, still, if he loses focus for a second, he's no longer part of the chariot. His stature has diminished because there was a time that he wasn't ready for prophecy. And therefore, he grounded himself by reciting the Shema, focusing on God to kind of sidestep, to avoid losing for that moment that spiritual readiness for prophecy. So, of course, when we're reading this, we're like, okay, this is not just standard prophecy to have that preparation, that elevation, that ascension to that high level that's unimaginable for us. But to constantly maintain that for a hundred years plus, that's what we talk about when we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why it says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and it doesn't apply that to anyone else. Now, I want to say that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they paled in comparison compared to Moses. Moses is a different level entirely. Moses is aspaklaria meira, the words of the Talmud. He had the clear vision, the most clear vision. And that, of course, is a separate subject that we're going to talk about a little bit down the line. We're going to skip it right now when talking about the, the various points of, um, 
of importance or at least of the history of, of prophecy to try to deepen our understanding. Now, of course, the most significant event in human history and the most significant seminal event in the history of prophecy is at Mount Sinai. After the Exodus, 50 days later, Jewish people convened around the mountain, and then you have something that never happened previously and was never replicated, that an entire nation ascends or is temporarily catapulted into the state of prophecy. Now, this is a major, major subject of discussion amongst the commentaries, exactly what was the level of, prof- level of prophecy, exactly how was it possible to have this very unnatural, if you will, temporary state in which people that are not capable of prophecy are suddenly having prophecy? It's a big discussion. I want to talk a little bit about it because it's a very significant event, not only as a one-time event, but this was the moment of prophecy that really is the father, uh, the grandfather of all other prophecies as we, as we shall see. So the Talmud tells us, of course, at Sinai, God spoke to the Jewish people and all to all future souls that were not alive then. And in fact, the Talmud says all future converts, they were also there. Their souls were also there. And it says that, the Talmud tells us that the first two of the Ten Commandments, that was delivered directly by God, whereas the rest came via Moses. In fact, if you read the Ten Commandments very critically, very carefully, you'll notice a shift from first person, where God's speaking directly to us, so to speak. I'm the Lord your God. I took you out of Egypt. Versus once we transition to the third, you know, the, the latter eight of the Ten Commandments, it's speaking in third person. Hashem your God. It's not, it's, it's almost as if Moshe is talking to us and speaking about God in third person. And the question that the Ramban asks is, you know, on, the, on this Talmud, of course, the Talmud is is basing it, you know, it's not it's not just random speculation. There's the tradition that we have that the first two came directly from God and the subsequent eight came via Moses. However, the verses say quite clearly otherwise. Why? The verse says that God spoke all these words the Jewish people. And that God wrote on the tablets everything that he said to the Jewish people. So is it everything or is it just the first two? If the first two were delivered by God to the Jewish people, well, that's the prophecy. And then the subsequent eight, that's, that's prophecy to Moses and Moses to us, but it has that inter- intermediary, that Moses intermediary, which is like the rest of the Torah, but that would not qualify to be included in the verse that says that God wrote on both tablets, actually first and second ta- set of tablets. The difference between the first and second tablets was not whether God wrote on them the Ten Commandments, but whether, whether God prepared the stone upon which to write it. The first one God did. The second one God tells Moses, you prepare the stone, I'll inscribe in the stone. You give me the body, I'll give you the soul. Whereas the first, God gives us the body and the soul, so to speak, of the tablets but it says upon them all Ten Commandments, and these were all written by God, the words that he spoke to the Jewish people. So how could you say that the first two were the sole ones in which there was prophecy to the entire nation? 
So the Ramban has a very clever resolution as follows. The first two, it was prophecy to the entire nation and they understood and they processed it exactly how Moses did. Whereas the subsequent eight, they heard the prophecy, they heard the voice, but they did not understand it. And like we mentioned last time, prophecy has at least two components. There is the absorbing of the message, and then there's the understanding of the digesting of that message. And that part, that second critical part of the prophecy, they did not have, and that required Moses to unpack it for them. And therefore, yes, they technically heard it, but they still heard it from Moses as well because they didn't understand that prophecy. And he explains the first two Ten Commandments, they're so critical, they're so necessary because they're the the backbone of all of Torah, all positive mitzvahs are a fulfillment of the first of the Ten Commandments, all negative prohibitions, trans- transgressions are all emanations of the second, of, of not having a, fall, a, a false God, of not rejecting God, and therefore that was imperative for the Jewish people to hear it from God directly, because really that's a condensed, like a concentrated version of all of Torah, and therefore that had to be directly from God. But everyone agrees so this is interesting just to say, like, what was the content of the prophecy at Sinai? And we're still going to talk about that later on uh, throughout the 13 principles. But how exactly does a nation, a whole nation, achieve prophecy? Now, who are these people? These are people that a few months earlier were slaves. So what happened to be able to turn a nation, I'm sure there were some righteous people, I'm sure there were less righteous people, but it's a, it's a mixed bag. How does everyone, including, by the way, the mixed multitude, the Egyptians that joined on board, how do they all experience prophecy as one? That too is a major discussion in the commentaries and there are various answers to that question. So one of the answers is, is that this was a miracle. This was, a, again, once in history event that a nation that and people that were not capable of prophecy, they got it nonetheless. And the Talmud says that they died and they were blown 12 miles away and they had to be revived and they died again. That's why they told Moses, we can't handle this. You speak to us. We're not capable. This is unnatural. This is being brute forced. And indeed, this was something which was out of the ordinary. This really, this wasn't a fit. And it happened anyhow because it was necessary because upon this event, the truth of Moses' prophecy and the truth of Torah is going to be built. There is other ideas as to understanding this, this problem of how a nation comprised of a collection of different people, people that are previously were not prophets, how did they have prophecy? It does rely on some of the same ideas, but one of the commentaries suggests a very, very interesting idea that as a result of the Exodus and the subsequent days that followed, and they start getting the manna, and they're surrounded by the clouds, and they have the pillar of fire, and they've experienced the miraculous year in Egypt with all the miracles, the nation is being elevated. Again, it is... It is supernatural. That's why it didn't last. That's why the, the golden calf happened right, right afterwards. 
but the nation is being elevated to this higher level, so much so that some of the commentaries suggest, based upon a Talmud, the Talmud says that when Adam and Eve sinned, the venom of the serpent began to quiver within them. They became corrupted because of the sin. At Sinai, it's a completion of a process of expunging that venom, of removing the ill effects, the stench of the sin of Adam has now ceased. So they've been temporarily restored to the state of Adam, and the stature of Adam, and consequently the prophecy of Adam, the way it was before his sin. Did Adam do anything to deserve his prophecy? No, he was treated like that. Did the nation do anything to deserve the prophecy? No, they're being created now anew as Adam before their sin. That's one an amazing, a very deep idea that uh, some of the commentaries go with to explain how the nation achieved prophecy at Sinai. And incidentally, we can surmise from this that if you look at the sin of the golden calf and what it did, it's identical to what the sin of Adam and Eve and what that did, that's exactly parallel to each other. We have this period, this blissful utopia that was unearned, unearned utopia of Adam in the garden. And then he has this very unceremonious drop from God's graces because of this sin. And then we have this nation is elevated. And again, this idyllic utopia, unearned, and right away immediately follows that same pattern. There's that immediate drop. And of course, what this teaches us is that unearned greatness doesn't last. But at that moment of Sinai, the nation was like Adam, free of sin, free of the Eitzharah, not subject to that quivering venom within them. And therefore, of course, the result of that human is unrestrained prophecy. I want to point, I feel like we're, we're, we're too far down this line for me to avoid this. The Kabbalists tell us that, you know, Adam's soul was one soul, and then it got divided up, and it got divided up, and it got divided up, and it was divided into three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, that was a replica of Adam, and then into 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, and then the 70, 70 souls that descended to Egypt. And at Sinai, the 600,000 souls, that was a precise replica of Adam. What that means, you have to ask the Kabbalists. But what I can tell you what it means is, is that at Sinai, at the foot of the mountain, there was a replica of Adam before his sin. And, th- th- and now it makes sense how a nation, not worthy necessarily, not earned, how a nation experienced prophecy because they were at that time recreated and refashioned as Adam was before his sin. Now, the results of Sinai, of course, are very significant. And we could almost suggest that everything that we have today, all of Torah, it's all an extension of Sinai. Because after all, everything is built upon the foundations of Sinai. But the Talmud goes on to tell us even further that actually all prophecy was delivered at Sinai. It wasn't actually conveyed at Sinai. But the touch point of heaven and earth that happened at Sinai, that's when all the prophecies were delivered. And that's when the prophecies were here. They just, they just weren't dispatched yet. So for example, it quotes a verse in Malachi. Malachi is one of the latest of the prophets. It says, this was the teaching, the prophecy of Malachi that was in his hand. It was in the hand of Malachi. 
says the Midrash. doesn't say it was in the days of Malachi. It was in the hands of the Malachi. Why? Because Malachi, the prophet, Malachi, I think you pronounce it in English, the, the prophet, he was holding it since Sinai. At Sinai, there was a prophecy delivered to Malachi, and it was in his hand. It's just that he didn't have the permission to convey that. Meaning that this was the, this was the, the funnel through which prophecy was delivered, because this, after all, is a touch point heaven and earth. And then all the other prophets are the ones who are at their time in the right place are actually delivering what was actually conveyed via this mass prophecy that was given at Sinai. Moreover, the Talmud tells us, the book of, of Brachos, right at the beginning, it's one of those pages in Talmud that almost, if you're anyone who studies Talmud, eventually gets to it because it's like first book of Talmud is Brachos, and it's like page five, I think it is. So it's right at the beginning. And maybe we can even posit that it was put there because it's so important. Uh, you know, at least people will get to this because it's so central. But it says that what was given at Sinai is everything. Torah, Nevi'im, the prophets, Tzuvim, the writings. Moreover, any insight, any new novel insight that we come up with today in Torah, brand new, no one's ever said it. Actually, that was part of what was given at Sinai. All the words of the prophets, all given at Sinai. And that is why Moses is the father of all prophets and he's the father of all the sages because after all, he was the one who facilitated the great transferring of prophecy and of Torah and of godly wisdom and godly inspiration that was done at Sinai. And we have another shift that happens here. The Talmud tells us, you know, Sinai has a lot of different names. A lot of mountains have different names. You know, Mount Moriah, Har Yerah, Jerusalem, Temple Mount, Harabite. A lot of names for the same mountain. Mount Sinai is called Mount Sinai. It's also called Chorev. Chorev or Horeb. Why is Mount Sinai called Chorev? So the word Chorev means destruction. So simultaneous with the ascension of the nation at Sinai and all the future prophecies that are being conveyed at Sinai, there is a concurrent destruction for everyone else. Because now the nation has been selected, one nation has been selected as the nation of prophecy and all the other nations no longer have the opportunity to unlock that level. Because remember, prophecy, it's not something isolated. It's a reflection, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, of, of closeness between God and humanity. And this is the greatest incident in which there was a, this closeness and it was designated exclusively to one nation to the exclusion of the other nations and therefore part and parcel of the Sinai experience is the concomitant destruction of other nations from achieving that same greatness. There's never there's never been another replica of Sinai because this is the binding of God and the Jewish people. And of course, this raises the question of prophecy appearing by Gentiles post-Sinai. Maybe before Sinai, you know, Noah was before Sinai, but before the Jewish people. It was more like a, it was an open field. Whoever was able to achieve the levels of prophecy, even without Torah, pre-Torah, much harder, obviously, but they were good candidates for that. And it's a major question that the commentaries talk about. We see, of course, in the Torah after Sinai, 
one of the villains of the story in the book of Numbers is, of course, Bilam, or Balaam. And he has prophecy. Wait a minute. Isn't this after there was a destruction, so to speak, for the rest of the people who are now locked out of prophecy? It's the question that all the commentaries discuss. If God is residing amongst us, if God is close to us, if God is dwelling within us, if we have this extension of Sinai, like the Ramban tells us, right after Sinai, what happens is people build a tabernacle. Tabernacle is a mini Sinai, continuing that closeness, continuing that connection, continuing that prophecy. We have Bilaam, and he's after that, and God has says, God has designated, so to speak, his connection with humanity to be at its most intense with the Jewish people. Why does Bilaam have prophecy? It's a major discussion. So Talmud says, well, Bilaam, he wasn't a real prophet. He was more a kosin. He was a sorcerer. The Midrash gives us a different answer. The Midrash tells us that it's true. Once we have Sinai and we have the continuation of Sinai with the tabernacle, God has said, God says he's dwelling amongst us. Prophecy exists only by us and only for us. And perhaps you may ask, says the Midrash, what about Bilaam? He had prophecy even post Sinai, post the tabernacle being built. Midrash gives us an interesting answer. It says, well, Bilaam, let's look at the content of his prophecy. Praises for the Jewish people. Matovu oholecha Yaakov, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob. God does not see any sin amongst Jacob. There is no necromancers, sorcerers amongst the Jewish people. Who's counting the dust of, of Jacob, the children of Jacob? Again, many, many compliments and wonderful prophecies that Bilaam is foretelling about the greatness of the Jewish people. And therefore, okay, that's the exception. Because this kind of is a Jewish prophecy because look what he actually says. On his own, maybe he's a sorcerer. But when he is given the prophecy, it's prophecy that is also there to, you know, to tout and to laud the grace of the Jewish people. And in fact, some of the commentaries add, you know, if it was just us saying these nice things, well, we're kind of biased. But when you have Bilam who has such a pathological hatred for the Jewish people and he still says that once he achieves his prophecy, well, then we should know that these things are true and that will really penetrate our hearts, the message of such a prophecy. There is an alternate approach to understand the prophecy of Bilam, And this is something that we'll see a little bit later on as we go through the various transitions throughout the history of prophecy. And that is that there's always has to be a balance. There always has to be a balance. The Maya created this world in which and specifically for the purposes of free will can exist. So if there's no free will, then there's going to be a, a mismatch in in the Almighty's desire for the world. And of course, we spoke about this in the past. Why did he want it? And that was a discussion that we covered in earlier principles. But there's always got to be equality, equilibrium between the, so to speak, forces of good and bad, and that way it allows free will to flourish. If we're going to have someone as great as Moses who is promoting Torah, we have to have someone as evil, but as powerful as Moses, who is doing the opposite. And thus, Bilaam is the anti-Moses, 
if there is a Moses, there has to be an anti-Moses. If there is an Abraham, that's an anti-Abraham. There has to always be that balance. And because Moses on the side of holiness is so, is so powerful, greatest prophet, we're told, well, on a certain level, a certain dimension, Bilaam was even greater. And that again, not to say that his prophecy was truly as great as Moses is, because after all, he is described as a sorcerer in Jewish literature. A sorcerer is not quite a prophet. But it means that the the influence that he had was as great as Moses. So we have this connection at Sinai, and that, that's the epicenter really of, of all prophecy, because it's the epicenter of all connection. It's maintained afterwards with building the portable Sinai, which is the tabernacle. And if you study the tabernacle, you'll notice that all the vessels of the tabernacle, they're epitomizing this closest, this connection, of course, the cherubs and, you know, the ark and, and the table and the menorah, all, they're all components of this relationship that we have between the Almighty and us. And that's going to perpetuate the closeness and the proximity the Jews have with God at Sinai, or they have with God at Sinai. And consequently, the conditions for prophecy continue. But what happens as we get further and further away from Sinai? The potency of that connection and the potency, thus, of the prophecy, it begins to decline. And that's why we see that there's a degradation of the level of prophecy as we distance ourselves from Sinai. In fact, if you look at uh, Jewish literature, you'll see that we have, of course, the Torah and the prophets. But even the prophets is broken down between the earlier prophets and the later prophets, and the commentaries talk about how while only Moses had aspaklaria meira, the clear aspaklaria, the clearest vision, the earlier prophets, they had aspaklaria meira, clear lucid vision of the not so clear lucid vision, which means it was still a higher level of clarity than the subsequent prophets that came afterwards. And thus from the point of Isaiah and onwards, we're told amongst, uh, from the, from the literature, that's already a little bit of a shift and a decline between the level of the earlier prophets and the later prophets. What happens? We get to the third component of the Tanakh, the third component of the Jewish Bible, if you will. It's called the writings. And our sages tell us that the writings were not actually written with prophecy or full-blown prophecy, only with what's called Ruach HaKodesh, literally the divine spirit or the divine inspiration, which is, so to speak, a level of prophecy, but not quite the same as full prophecy. And we'll talk about more about the differences between that. So the Ram tells us, he gives a description of what it's, what it's like to have Ruach HaKodesh versus prophecy. Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, is that a person feels as if something is descending upon them. And there's some other force there. And he's speaking words of wisdom or praise or words of rebuke, other words, other ideas. And he's still awake and he's still alert. He's still living as a human, but now there's some other force that he feels that's descending upon him. And that is speaking with Ruach HaKodesh. Whereas when someone is actually having that high level of prophecy we talked about, they're departing their life as a human and temporarily living like an angel means they're going in an entirely different dimension. They're not living as a standard issue human. They're ascending temporarily, 
to that highest level and then they're going to go back to being a regular human. They're not going to be they're, – they're going to dissociate. They're going to disconnect from their senses as a standard issue human and going to temporarily elevate to a different kind of human, a prophet. Whereas this divine inspiration, yes, you're going to be influenced by something – but you're still with your senses, still living like a regular human. Just now you're kind of a, a heightened awareness, a heightened awareness of, of divine inspiration. And when we talk about the, the latest, the latest of the prophets, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, etc., the Ramban tells us, quotes a verse in Zechariah, Zechariah tells us that he has the angel who is speaking through me. The Ramban explains that this is already at the very tail end of prophecy. So obviously the, the weakest relative, the weakest prophets of them all, they already need an angel to help interpret their visions. And then we have the destruction of the first temple. We're going to have the divine presence that rests in the temple. So we have this uninterrupted chain from Sinai, the portable Sinai. And then for the next many centuries, we have the tabernacle. And then we have the temple. So we have this uninterrupted time where God's amongst us. And then suddenly the temple's destroyed. What happens then? The, the divine presence departs. And what goes with it? Prophecy. Because again, prophecy is this connection. It's a manifestation of this connection that we have or that we could have with God. So when the first temple's destroyed, there's no more new prophets that are going to arise. Talmud tells us there's five differences between the first temple and the second temple. First temple had the ark, had the kapores, which is the cover on the ark, and it has the kruvim, the cherubs. Second temple did not have the ark. Again, this is the vessel that most epitomizes the close connection that we can have with God. And symbolically, because we didn't have that heightened level of connection to the second temple, we did not have the vessel that embodies that. First temple, there would be a heavenly fire that would descend upon the upon the altar that did not appear in the second temple. The Shekhinah, divine presence, whatever that means, rested in the first temple, not the second temple. Ruach HaKodesh, that divine inspiration, first temple, not second temple. Urim Betumim, that pseudo-prophetic connection that the high priest had via the breastplate, that appeared only in the first temple, not in the second temple. And in fact, we do have prophets that are prophesying at the very beginning of the second temple era, but actually all those people were born and already been sanctioned as prophets in the first temple era. And they just were able to live long enough to be able to still be active as prophets into the second temple era but once the first temple era ends, first temple is destroyed, there's no more prophets that are being created, if you will. And the ones that are alive, they're the last ones, or at least until Messiah comes and everything changes. We'll talk about Messiah in a little bit. And we'll talk about Messiah a lot once we get to the actual principle that talks about the, I think it's the 12th one that talks about uh, believing in Messiah. But at that time, First temple is over, no more new prophets, and the ones that do prophesy in the second temple era, they're the ones who are the holdovers from the first temple era. 
Now, as we mentioned, prophecy, it's if we merited to live in a time where prophecy was extant, it's a very deeply spiritual world. If, if you lose your donkeys, you go to the prophet, prophet says, well, actually, I'll give you the coordinates where they are right now. And you do that a hundred times and every time he's right. Like, what is that, like, what is that world that you're living in? Could you deny God? It'd be very hard to deny God under those conditions. Yet we told, we're told, and this is again an unimpeachable reality, is that there always has to be a counterweight. What is the counterweight to prophets? And what is going to go away once prophets go away? Because again, we lose the prophets. If the counterweight was still very strong, we would again have that asymmetry. We always have to have the equilibrium. We always have to have the, the conditions to that free will can reign always have to be present. We find a very interesting story about the end of prophecy. It appears twice in the Talmud, in Yoma 69b, in Sanhedrin 64a. I want to preface this. This is a very Kabbalistic teaching. So we'll try to hold off any questions on it because you, you'll, the, the questions are obvious and they jump out. Because what we're going to read about, it's very, it's very odd. But we're going to read about the end of the prophets and the end of something else. Because they came together and they had to come together because they were the counterweights to each other. The Talmud quotes a verse in Nehemiah, again, one of the very later prophets. The verse says, they cried out with a very loud voice to Hashem their God. So everyone's crying out. What's happening here? What what are they crying about and why? So the Talmud explains. They're saying as follows, Woe, woe, W-O-E. Oive, as we'd say in Yiddish. This is what destroyed the temple. And this is what burned the sanctuary. And this is what killed the righteous. And this is what caused the Jewish people to go into exile. And behold, it is still dancing amongst us. They're talking about the counterweight. They're talking about the, the yang to the yin of the prophets. They're talking about the desire, the lust for idolatry. Prophecy is undeniable evidence for God. Yet that can exist. You have to always have something which is equally as strong. That was the lust for idolatry. That was the counterweight. And now they don't have the ammunition or they'll lose the ammunition to fight it. They have to get rid of it because it has to go away. It has to go extinct. At the same time, the prophecy is going extinct. So continues the prayer. And they're telling God, you only gave us this desire to get reward. We don't want it, and we don't want its reward. We're not interested. No, thank you. So they sat for three days in, in fasting, and they prayed, and a, a paper or a, a, a note descended from heaven. It said one word in it, MS. It's true, i.e., yes. Okay, I've agreed to your request. A small, fiery lion cub burst out of the Holy of Holies and the prophet, who is this? The prophet Zechariah, one of the last prophets, he said to the Jewish, he said to the, to the people who were participating, who were called collectively the men of the great assembly, 
that thing that you just saw, that is the lustful desire for idolatry. Oh, obvious question. My goodness, what's it doing there, right? Good question. So they tried to grab it, and as they grabbed it, one of its hairs fell out, and it let out a shriek that reverberated on the, that reverberated around the whole world. And they said, oh no, if we try to attack it, try to kill it, it's going to shriek again, and God will have mercy on it. What do we do? So the prophet came up with a, with a great solution. Let's put it in a container of lead, and we'll cover it with a covering of lead, and that will absorb its screams. That's what they did. And they put it in the, they put it in the lead box. Now it's hermetically sealed. We don't need to worry about it. And they said, aha, this is a very propitious time. Why don't we ask for even more cool stuff? There's, of course, the lustful desire for idolatry. We got that taken care of. It's in the bank, literally. It's in a lead vault. We got it. We're good. That desire is no longer going to, quote, dance among us. But there's another desire, the desire for sexual immorality. Let's get rid of that also once we're at it. So they did the same thing. Again, they sat, they prayed, and they got it. We're not told what this one looked like. And they said, you know what? Let's, let's just, let's just wait and see before we get rid of it. Let's, uh, let's put it in a detention cell for three days. So they put it in a detention cell for three days. Now people no longer have the desire for, for, for sexuality. And then there was a, a sick person and they needed a, like a fresh egg because that was, that would help them, give them the protein that would help them get better. But you know what? You gotten rid of this desire and people's and animals, Reproductive systems just ground to a halt. So even the eggs that were on the, on the brink of coming out, they just stopped. They froze in place. That's it. So they realized, oh no, we actually kind of need this. This is, this is a Yetzahara. This is lust that could be used for bad, but it's the engine that drives the world. So we need it. So what do we do? So we said, hmm, maybe let's pray that we should have just the good parts, but not the bad parts. Problem is, is that the Almighty doesn't do any half measures. It's either all or nothing. So if you want to get rid of it, you got to get rid of it. But then we see how disastrous that is. So they, they, so what they decided, this is again the words of the Talmud, again, very Kabbalistic. What they did is they blinded its eyes. They, they damaged it, which caused people to no longer be drawn and attracted to their mothers and their sisters. So incest became no longer lustfully desirous. Thus concludes the Talmud. Now, I want to point out, there's a lot of interesting things there to, to draw. Like if, you know, the difference between the lust that people can have for forbidden relationships versus the lust that they don't have for their sisters and their mothers that's the exact difference we're told between what we desire now to bow down to an idol versus what doesn't, doesn't titulate us at all. We don't see any value or meaning behind it. We're, we're kind of revolted by the whole notion versus what it used to be like when they actually had the desire for idolatry. And in fact, there's a very dramatic teaching in the Talmud, uh, where one of the great rabbis, one of the greatest rabbis, Rav Ashi, he was one of the primary architects of the Talmud. He started speaking about Menashe, the king of Israel, one of the bad kings who did idolatry. And he's like, yeah, tomorrow we'll talk about Menashe. So he has a dream that night. And Menashe appears to him in his dream. And he says to him, why are you talking about uh, about me like we're equals? 
But Menashe, who, who do you think he was? He said, well, you did idolatry after all. I read the books. So he's like, okay, let me ask you a halacha question. And he asked him a halacha question. And Rav Asha doesn't know the answer. So he says, you think you're so much better than me? I just stumped you with a halacha question. And then he tells him, if you were alive in a time when the desire for idolatry was still in its most intense form, not only would you have done idolatry yourself, you would have lifted your garments so you could run faster to the house of idolatry. That's how intense it was. So Ravashi has this dream. He wakes up the next day. He's like, okay, the lectures didn't be about Manasha, but Manasha, he's more like our, our master, our teacher. You know, we can't denigrate him because we, we can't imagine what that world was like in which idol- the desire for idolatry was that intense. This is the story we see. Of course, there's a lot to discuss in it, but our sages tell us that with the death knell of the lust of idolatry, that we have the death knell of, of prophecy. Again, there has to always be a balance. There has to always be this equilibrium for good and bad. Prophecy makes God undeniable, and the only thing that tolerated free will was what for now is incomprehensible, the lust for idolatry. When what when one has to go, the other necessarily has to go with it as well. And then we look at the era that followed the this point at the very beginning of the first temple era. Prophecy is going extinct. The desire for idolatry is also disappearing. It's still going to continue as a tradition, if you will, but the lust is gone. And what happens then? We have the rise of the Sadducees, the Hellenists. We have all these other groups now that are going to be movements towards heresy. Heresy can only flourish if prophecy has gone extinct. Yes, people could do sins of idolatry because they have a lust for it, but organized heresy takes off almost, if you will, once prophecy ends because the beacon of prophecy was so bright that the darkness of the heresy had no chance against it. Yes, there were still sins for other reasons, but when prophecy is present, heresy cannot exist. Prophecy goes away, then a whole different world emerges where there is heresy of all kinds beginning to surface. Now, what about prophecy post the extinction of prophecy? So the Talmud tells us that when Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last of the prophets, when they died, there's no longer prophecy amongst Israel. That said, they used the Baskol there was a different kind of prophecy. If prophecy is a call, a voice, a bas call or bat call is the daughter of the voice. Meaning that you have a voice, a prophecy, and if you're a prophet, you hear the voice. Prophecy no longer exists. But if you were maybe capable, if you were the equivalent of a prophet in, in your generation, you wouldn't hear the voice, but you'd hear the emanation, maybe the echo, the daughter of the voice, the... Something of the voice, the voice of the voice, that would arrive at your doorstep. In fact, the Talmud goes on to say that there were times in history when they heard a bat call. And of course, the sages were capable of hearing those bat calls. And it said, the, the message that they heard was that there is someone amongst you 
that if he was in a different generation, i.e. if he was in the times before temple was destroyed, when there was still that closeness, he would have been a prophet. Now, because of circumstances beyond his control, he's come after the era of prophecy. He could still have the bot call. He could still have the bot call that's still emanation of prophecy, the emanation of the voice, the daughter of the voice. That he could still have. But if he was in the previous generation, he would have prophecy. And all the sages are looking at themselves and like, mm, I think we know what he's talking about. And they pointed at Hillel the Elder. They, he's, the, he's the one he was talking about. If he was around previously, he would right away be a prophet. So there's this other level of prophecy that's called a, a batol, the, the daughter of prophecy, if you will. And then there's also the idea that we spoke about earlier, that Ruach HaKodesh, that same divine inspiration through which the writings were written, that still is present even today. Aha. There are still levels of connection and prophecy that we could have, or pro- pseudo-prophecy, if you will, even today even though it's obviously becoming more and more rare as the times are, are progressing, but this is still feasible even today. And by the way, uh, one of the commentaries notes that suppose you have three books. One book is the Torah, five books of Moses. One book is the prophets, and one book is the writings. So sometimes today they publish the Tanakh in one volume. Suppose you have it in three volumes, and you want to stack them. There's a proper way to stack them. You put the writings in the bottom, it's the lowest level of prophecy, lowest level of revelation. It's only the divine inspiration, and therefore it's got to be in the bottom. On top of that, you put the prophets, because after all, prophets that was that was conveyed with real prophecy. It goes above the one that was only conveyed via divine inspiration, and of course, the prophecy of Moses, the highest level, that of course goes on top. Now, my grandfather, blessed memory. The way he explained the difference between prophecy and the divine inspiration, divine spirit, I thought it was a, a nice way to, to encapsulate it. He says that prophecy, it's something that comes from heaven upon you. It's something external. Whereas the divine inspiration, it is someone connecting to their soul there's some spirit of the divine that's already existing within your soul. Most of us are not connected to our soul. And therefore, we can't tap into the vast, vast reservoirs of insight that are already within our soul. But should we be able to do that, we can have this internal awakening of the divine spirit, so to speak, of the divine inspiration. That would be the Ruch HaTodesh. Again, it's more an internal awakening versus the external godly, if you will, prophecy that we can no longer have again, with the exception of Messiah, uh, that would be, he would be someone that's going to restore that uh, that reality. Of course, he's going to build a temple. Temple, again, is going to be that manifestation of that closeness. To conclude, I want to cite some of the teachings of our sages that talk about ways in which prophecy can still exist. So there's two sources in the Talmud. One, the book of Bava Basra, page 12, 12a and 12b. And then one in Brachos, page 57b. So Talmud tells us in Bava Basra, page 12a, from the day the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and it was given to the sages. So this is an idea of, of a certain transfer. The prophets are no longer the ones who have prophecy and the sages now, they have prophecy. So that means that there is still Prophecy, if you will, that can be tapped in via Torah. 
And of course, there's also a bigger discussion. If you look at the big picture of Jewish history, you'll notice that with the end of the prophecy, it's going to spawn the new era, the era of new insights of the oral Torah. That's the teaching of the Talmud in 12a of Bava Basra. You turn the page to 12b, and you'll find another teaching. Rav Yochanan said, from the day the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to the children and the crazy people and the imbeciles. And it gives two very strange episodes of prophecy. We don't have time to go through them. I advise you to read it. It's very interesting, I thought, of how imbeciles gave prophecy or or small scintillas, penumbras of, of prophecy and how children gave prophecy. Very interesting. So we have these ideas that prophecy in its original state is extinct. Then we have this era of the Batkol. We have this Ruch HaKodesh, these other things. And then we have this prophecy or components of prophecy that's still manifesting itself by children, by the by the insane, by the sages makes it a little more sense than the other two. And then we find the teaching in the book of Brachos, page 57b, that dreams are a 60th of prophecy. In fact, the Talmud says that there's five things that are 60ths. A fire is a 60th of Gehenna. Honey is a 60th of manna. Shabbos is a 60th of Olam Sleep is a 60th of death. And dreams are a 60th of prophecy. And the commentaries tell us that in, in, in Halacha, Jewish law, one 60th is the, the ratio in which the one is rendered insignificant compared to the 60. Meaning if you have, let's say, a pot with 60 units of meat and then one unit of milk drops into it. So that, again, this is a complicated law. We're not talking about the Jewish law now. But that would still be kosher because the one compared to the 60 is insignificant. And when it's telling us the same ratio, the fire, it's hot, but it ain't as hot as hell, right? It's hell 60 times hotter. What it means is, not that it's actually, you know, take the, you know, the amount of degrees and just multiply by 60. But what it means is compared to that, it's insignificant. It's it's similar in some way, but it's insignificant. Shabbos is, is amazing. It's blissful. It's wonderful. It's a 60th. It means compared to what, what the real Omaba is, it's insignificant. Uh, honey is really sweet, but how sweet was the manna? It was 60 times, more than 60 times. Maybe it was 100,000 times, but it was insignificant compared to the experience of the manna. And similarly, you know, sleep, you're kind of out of it, but it's not quite like death. Death, you're completely out of it. It's insignificant. The, the, those two, and similarly, dreams, it has some connection with prophecy, but of course, it's not really prophecy. It's a 60th. It's insignificant compared to real prophecy. What does it mean that the sleeper, the child, the insane, they have some sort of connection to prophecy? It's a good question. Maybe the answer is that, you know, prophecy, as if, you know, God is making decisions, is rendering insights. And of course, that appears in the heavenly realm. And, you know, that's, the angels know it, right? So, so why don't we know it? Because we're not in the heavenly realm. We're, we're in this world. 
And maybe the idea is that when someone is asleep, their senses are subdued. Connection to this world is diminished a little bit. Similarly, a child, they're always daydreaming. They're always, you know, they have imagination. They're not really living in the, in the real world. And of course, the insane, they're not living in the real world. What this is telling us is that to the degree that someone is, so to speak, less here, less living in, rea- in what we call reality, they're living more in the other ethers, if you will. They're roaming up and maybe they can pick up some sparks, some penumbra of prophecy. And that way, there's still some sort of, again, very feeble, obviously, and maybe, shall we say, unreliable but there is some sort of connection that can exist under those conditions. But of course, real prophecy, it no longer exists in our world. As a result, there is feasibility for heresy. As a result, some of us, you know, we live our lives and we don't really know what we're supposed to do. We don't have that clairvoyance, that clarity, that lucidity that we would have if we had a prophet. But it's important for us to note that there's the, there's the, consolation that we still have Torah. And Torah, of course, is a body of prophecy. And the more we connect to it, we connect to our soul and we're opening up the portals of our spiritual life. But even the idea of divine spirit, of divine inspiration, that's still accessible today. I want to note there was a book written by Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the primary disciple of the Arizal. So the name, the number one source for all things Kabbalah, and he wrote a book about how exactly to get Ruch HaTodesh. So he gives a step-by-step guide. In fact, he even laments in his book that people are not doing it. What's wrong with people? Like, it's so easy just to follow the instructions. I looked at the instructions. It's not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) But there are people that are alive today on this planet that definitely unquestionably still have it. Of course, there are different levels. They talk about a magid. A magid is when an angel appears to you at night and teaches you Torah. That happened. That, I don't know if it still exists today, but that definitely happened. In fact, there is a book written by Rabbi Yosef Karo. Who's Rabbi Yosef Karo? The author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Bet Yosef. It's not someone that you would think that, uh, you know, is having uh, these, you know, these weird visions of a lunatic. He wrote a book called Magid Meisharim, which is the diary of the Magid that appeared to him every night that taught him taught him cool stuff, interesting stuff. That again, it's not full-blown prophecy, but it's a level of Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, we have visitations of Elijah. Have you heard of that, that idea? Elijah appears to people and tells them cool stuff. My grandfather wrote in one of his books, and again, I said this recently, like in my eyes, there's only one person that who would tell me something that I don't agree with, but I'd still accept. Uh, obviously, Moses is different, you know, prophets, but I'm saying, like, in my lifetime, and my grandfather said that, it's my grandfather, of course, you know, a great Torah giant, and he says something I accepted, and he says that one of the sages that lived in our t- times, he passed away, I think, in 1970, he says, it's pretty sure that, pretty clear that he had a visitation of Elijah. That's what he says. I, I don't deny, I don't deny it. I, I would say the same thing. It's pretty clear he had a visitation of Elijah. Uh, today, the greatest scholar around today is Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. You read the stories about him. It's clear that he has the divine inspiration. There was one story about him, and this is again one of millions. This is not one story that like, oh my goodness. It's, it's one story that 
is one of dozens, dozens, hundreds scores of stories about him that, testi- that testify to this. He was studying a very uh, obscure subject and he got to a uh, very complicated discussion about the anatomy of some grasshopper that has appeared in the, in, the, in the Talmud in some obscure, arcane part of, of, of scholarship of learning. And he didn't know what it looked like. And you know what jumped right onto his Talmud? From out the window, boom, a grasshopper jumped on there. Has able to analyze the anatomy. That's one story of many, many. The stories are true. They're documented. They're legitimate. And by the way, if any one of us have had the fortune to meet a great Torah sage and giant, it's not even a question that these people have this, this great connection. Again, important to acknowledge. It's not real prophecy. It's a level. It's a low, low, low level compared to what the great visionaries and seers of yore had, but it's still some emanation. It's an echo. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a whiff. It's a scintilla of, uh, of that levels. And I want to conclude that the Rambam tells us that the King Messiah, may he come speedily in our days, he is going to be someone whose wisdom is going to exceed that of Solomon. His prophecy is going to be almost quite as great as Moses. So we're going to hopefully in our times get to witness what this looks like when people have the entire world and everything open before them and this high level of prophecy May we all be so fortunate to witness those great things. I thank you all for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing any questions, comments, uh, feedback of any sort. If it is on some of the Kabbalistic stuff that we talked about, I probably will tell you I don't know. Hope that's a, a, a acceptable answer, but I look forward to hearing your feedback. And don't forget to go to our website, torchweb.org, and get your free Torch Shabbat light switch covers, your free mitzvah magnets, torchweb.org, and we will send you your very own Torch Shabbat light switch covers, your very own mitzvah magnets.